You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man, as a two-time felon, I work really hard and I've been a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. 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 To the Freedom Pact. Welcome back to the Freedom Pact podcast and today on the show we have Christina Zenato who you may know as the Shark Whisperer, the Shark Dancer, she has many different names. Christina is one of the first in the world to have been able to induce a state of relaxation in the Caribbean reef sharks through gentle touch alone. And to us watching, it looks as if a shark is literally falling asleep in her lap. So she's here today to talk about what it is like to stare a shark directly in the face, uh, be surrounded by these sharks, how to best face your fears, and talk about purpose and meaning in life. Christina came to my attention when I watched the Will Smith documentary in which he faces his fear of sharks and Christina played a massive role in assisting Will get over that fear. So we talk about that today and a lot more. Guys, you're going to enjoy this one. So let's just get on with it. Christina, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Thank you. So when I was researching for this, I read this beautiful quote you once said, I have it here. You said, the passion for what I do is as big as the ocean I dive in. So let's talk about that passion. Where did that passion originally come from? And how far back does it go? Were you always adventurous and sort of connected with nature from a young age? Yes, it goes as far back as as a newborn baby. My mom tells me that when I was a, restless she will draw a bath a tepid bath and put me in it and I was just absolutely relaxed and it goes back to my upbringing in the central of Africa um, in an environment without television but an environment where we were free to go out there and skin our knees and play with insects we had rules and we had education because obviously we also had green mambas and black mambas and gorillas and crocodiles to deal with but primarily we were allowed to be uh, kids and to explore within the confinement the protection obviously of the camp because we're in the middle of the rainforest uh, we were allowed to touch and to experiment and to understand uh, what it was so my passion for nature comes from my childhood, my upbringing, my parents taking me out, maybe more to the ocean and the mountains, but still being in the open air. And like I said, uh, stitches, the skin, knees, and <laughs> scars are part still of my uh, entire body make. The ocean themselves is the family. My mom is from the ocean and my dad is from the ocean, so they always took me to the water. By three years old, I was able to swim. I would jump off a boat. I would join my dad as he would go free diving. I just wanted to watch him. I remember one of the things I remember is I would ask him to um, push me down. So he was just with his one hand, he would just grab my, kind of like from my butt, right? And just like push me down. And I thought I reached the depth of the, the universe. And so, yes, uh, always encouraged to be outside and to be understanding, not fearful of nature. 
How important do you think that is for all of us then now to sort of disconnect from the grid from time to time and sort of engage with our human side a bit more? I think I think we we need to do that more and more. I think um, fortunately I am approaching forty nine. So I was born in in a time where. Uh, as a kid, you were sent outside, go outside and play. <laughs> that was, you know, uh, the things that you were told. And uh, maybe some of the more modern kids actually grew up in a different, is like sit on the couch and watch this, and it's different. But I think if we actually spend more time with nature, in nature, understanding how it works, maybe we would also have uh, created people that are more in tune with a chance to develop a world that is actually more maybe comfortable, um, more understanding um, of how it all works. When I hear that there are a children that uh, don't even know how a chicken looks like because their entire life they only think that they've been eating as chicken nuggets and they don't even know how literally a chicken looks like. Uh, for someone maybe like me and you sounds impossible but it does exist. You know, it's in a certain way scary that you know somebody that and I'm not talking about how like a unique animals a chicken everybody you know it, that's how children are sometimes they don't so I think a more nature connectivity will help us better understand how our positional world is mm. so when did you first realize that working with not only animals but working with sharks specifically was going to bring you the most meaning and the most purpose in your life i i think from immediately because i i truly enjoyed being with the sharks in the water right away so i actually changed my entire life to be able to work with sharks and continue to dive primarily was to be able to be in the ocean scuba diving that was my my goal i want to be in the ocean scuba diving and i realized i could actually make uh I could live from it, not really make a living, but you know, live from it, survive from it. And so that was the primary part. And then the component of the sharks was like really interesting. Um, but it was not that at a certain point I was like, oh yeah, I can do, it was like from the beginning. I actually changed my life in a week time. Do you remember the first time you encountered the animal and do you remember your first thoughts seeing it and, and what that did to you how did you connect on that level then and the sharks yeah i saw sharks on my first open ocean dive oh wow <laughs> i was doing my certification I'm like you have sharks <laughs> <laughs> and zazer is swimming alone trying to figure it out my buoyancy as i was you know i'm just going up and down and the breathing and all the issues that come with scuba i flopping around a little bit there was actually sharks i saw his first dive uh, I never stopped seeing sharks. It's one of the reasons I decided to come back here and stay. So obviously that is something you're extremely passionate about and you do for a living. How important do you think it is for not only yourself, but me and, and the listeners, everyone, to find that one thing you're extremely passionate about and almost build your life around it rather than just going into a career that maybe looks successful and chasing money rather than chasing meaning? I think it would be extremely important for actually a better understanding of us in this world. Um, I've seen it many times. I've heard it many times. I had people telling me, oh, when are you going to uh, get a real job? Uh, um, and it's like, well, what's not real? Uh, 
if I'm sitting at home on a couch pretending to work, you can tell me when are you going to get a real job. But what I was doing, it, it's a job. It might be a job that is a product of our world and our environment where, you know, the human uh, kind of, you know, that I deal with is at the fifth level of taking care of their needs, right? They don't have problems about food and the roof and fresh water and education and health. They're beyond that. They're actually re looking for a recreational uh, part of their lives, which is very modern part of our world. But at the end of the day, it is a job. My job is to take people on the water to share what I do, to show them, to teach specific about the sharks or the caves or anything like that. But I think if people actually lived a life that maybe is not as lucrative, all right, but that every morning allows them to do something that has an um, intrinsic kind of like satisfaction. Yes, you need to make money in order to make a living. But instead of uh, focusing our success level on the inches of TV that I watch or the kind of car that I drive or the kind of like lawn that I have in front of my house, and I'm not judging, I'm just saying sometimes the parameters are there. I heard the same parameters. I think we will be living a much better and uh, healthier life. I think in our modern society, we put wealth over health, but at the end of the day, you can be as wealth as you want, but if you're not healthy, uh, you're not going to enjoy it as much. Again, I do understand we need to rise from the level of poverty and find a job, but if you can do that and at the same time find a passion that allows you to actually be focused and interested. I think a lot of people then would not need the additional embellishment to their lives in order to feel satisfied. And it will reduce consumerism and it would can reduce uh, pollution and it will reduce the way we interact with the planet and it's just like such, such a like a reversing back um, kind of attitude. So, Utopia maybe, but you know, that's, that's my belief. Yeah. So I think we all have, I think everyone listening has this dream in their mind of what they want to do. And we might have, you know, a dream location and we think, wow, if only I could, you know, up and move my life here, that would be the goal. And, you know, for a lot of people, it is just a pipe dream and, you know, it's a massive commitment and it's a massive risk for a lot of people. You've got to take the chance, but you took the chance. Uh, I think you were in your early twenties when you moved to the Bahamas. How much of a risk was that at the time or was it a hard or easy decision to make what was the decision making process there were you that committed to your dream that it was just so in all honesty at 22 it was just a no-brainer it was an easy decision to make uh my decision was to come here for a year and do this have dive in out of my system i was dreamed to be a diver since i was a kid so I was like, oh, I'm going to be there, use my languages, keep working in the hotel business, dive till I, I'm good with it, and then uh, go back and continue into my hotel career, which I loved. At, at the same time, I loved working in a hotel. So um, both jobs were actually very uh, important to me. I absolutely loved being at a hotel front desk and interacting with people and all of that. I think the hardest part is as the years rolled is actually to stay and to continue your commitment through uh, the failures 
through the lack of income, through the uh, constant nagging of society. I call it the society drums, right? They just drum in your head. You don't even know. You're not even born and they're already drumming around your mom's belly. Oh, you're a guy. You need to do this. You need to have a house. Boom. You need to have a wife. Boom. You need to have kids. Boom. And you need to make this salary. And it's just drumming before you can even kind of like realize that in a certain way, you don't even almost have a choice. So the hardest part was to stay. The hardest part is to stay now as I'm approaching a different part of my life, right? 50 is closer than, than what 40 was. <laughs> and I started thinking, oh, wow, that little part of this was like, what are you going to do, Christina, when you can't do this anymore? And, you know, you should stop diving now to prepare your next 15 years of your life. And I'm thinking, yes, I should. And then I'm like, no, no, you should keep doing what you're doing while building something else. So the hardest part is not to do the first decision. I think the hardest part is to stay through everything, to stay through Hurricane Francis and through Hurricane Matthew and through Hurricane Dorian, followed by COVID and being here without a salary since March, not knowing when tourism, which is my income, will ever resume be committed to this day still going out and doing my work with the sharks and my work with the caves out of my own pocket because that's what i want to do i think a lot of people are don't even take the first step they go into this what ifs what ifs what ifs what ifs but sometimes uh, we really need to ask ourselves that questions and i think it's a very important question that sometimes we fail to ask is what if i only had a year to live Because we, we, don't, we don't know. And I'm not saying to be a reckless person. I actually have, I'm very good with my finances. I'm a very budgeting person for what I make. That is how I am. I, uh, the hurricane season comes, I have my fuel tanks. I have my water jugs. I have my canned food is already ready. I don't even have to rush to the food store. So I'm not saying about reckless. But if you only had one more year to live, how would you like to live it? Committing, you know, commit, like, uh, sorry, commute back and forth two and a half hours per day to your $100,000 a year job or do something else that maybe makes a, a, a fifth of that, a sixth of that. But when you come out, you, you wake up in the morning, you come out of bed, and it's like, oh, I can't wait to do that. Or you come home at night and you're like, oh, I need to finish this because I, I have all this data. Like I come home from a cave dive. We come home from a cave dive, Kevin and, I, and we sit here and you're like, okay, uh, take the pictures out. Okay, we need to do the map or put the data in. And it's hard work. It's a lot of work. We've been out on the field for eight hours. We've been cave diving for four. We've been carrying gears for two and a half hours on the Bahamians. And when we're half home, we have to walk the dogs, you know, clean the apartment or prepare dinner and all that. But we then dive into the computer. Like, oh, I want to see what we did today and what results. Imagine if you could work like that. But if you only had a year to live and every once in a while, I ask myself, well, if I only had five years, what would I like to do? Come out of the water now and be dry for the next five years while I'm planning this other thought or continue what I do with a passion that I have, which eventually will bring something else because we evolve in life and it has already evolved. I used to 
be a five, six dives per day kind of person. Now I have different responsibilities. I'm not at that level of diving anymore. I don't want to be at that level of diving anymore. My dives have differentiated themselves. They've become more specialized and more unique. And so my time is spent differently. I guess the thing about working a job you're not really in love with is that no matter how much money you make, you spend you know, Monday to Friday doing something you don't like. And the trade-off is you get two days back to do something you love on the weekend. Whereas for you, if you're doing something you love, I guess your entire week is like the weekend. Yes. I mean, I still have my weekends where I then can go and do that extra thing that I really love. Maybe that cave dive that I could not do if I'm teaching a cave course or that shark research that I can do because I'm not teaching a shark course. Absolutely. But even when I'm teaching, I'm looking forward to meeting my students. I'm looking forward to going in a cave and seeing the evolution of my students. Imagine working Monday through Friday with your brain just projected forward into the future. How much of the now, how much of the energy that you're wasting into thinking, oh, when Saturday comes, I can't wait for Friday. I can't wait for Friday. And it's like, meanwhile, it's Tuesday. Are you enjoying Tuesday yet? And don't get me wrong, I, my life is not all, you know, sparkly gold oceans and, you know, nice drops of salt in my hair. There's a lot of, of difficult moments. But what I'm saying is I'm also able to say, wow, today was a really good day. We actually did this and it was very productive. And I was able to lately, you know, speak with, to someone on the phone that I don't know, but posted a comment on my Instagram talking about her fears. And I said, hey, uh, why don't you WhatsApp me and spend 20 minutes on WhatsApp talking to someone about her fears of scuba diving and little possible things that she can work on. Not even as an instructor, nothing, just as a recommendation. Here's my thoughts. And you come out of the phone call thinking, well, that, you know, that's good. Because maybe there's one more person now that is going to try this or is going to confront her fears or his fears or his doubts or maybe try something new. I love that you mentioned fears there because um, I actually saw your name uh, trending a little bit on Twitter the other day because in the UK at the moment on Sky, um, we have, there's a massive advert for the Will Smith documentary um, oh. about, about facing fears. And that's sort of the program they really push in on the TV at the moment over here. And, you know, when you watch that, you see a, a really good mainstream example of someone who's really afraid of something and takes, you know, actionable steps to, to face that head on. So when you think back to that experience, what did you learn through that story about Will overcoming those fears in terms of how we can all face our fears and, you know, actually beat them? I think so providing that a little bit of fear is what is how humankind to, <laughs> to survive, right? Um, we fear on a healthy level is what allows me not to go with a metal rod on the beach during a lightning storm. We know <laughs> how that ends. So when the fear becomes debilitating, when the fears prevents us from living, that is when the fear is unhealthy. So we need to recognize that we need to have a level of awareness and fear, but it cannot prevent us from living. 
uh, with Will, one of the things that I think he did that was uh, very uh, important, I don't know the extent of the documentary, but in real life, when I met Will, we spent about an hour and a half on the dock talking. He had a lot of questions. Um, a very open mind, which is the other one that sometimes lacks when people have fear, they come into the conversation with me with this, this is, this is my truth. And no matter how many times you say, well, look at these, you know, 10,000 videos or 10,000 minutes or listen to me and these other hundreds of people that do this, they're like, no, 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 and it's blocked. Will came in with an open mind and then they did the first step, which is knowledge. He asked questions. He uh, kind of like, as I answer something, he asks something else. I remember then I filmed the little segment and then when we stopped filming, he and I kept walking and he had more questions and, you know, generalized questions or specific questions. And I think that's how each one, every one of us can do that is we need to acquire knowledge. I do believe the fear stems from a lack of knowledge. The least we know, the more fearful we are. Uh, let's bring us back to three, four months ago. How, I don't know if your social media, mine was insane. I actually had to stop, you know, actually to mute several people because uh, through the fear dictated by not knowing COVID, I kept receiving every day those uh, videos like, oh, it's the, you know, you need to do this, you know, hold your breath for 10 seconds. And this Chinese doctor says this. And it, that was all fear, which then created all this massive panic as we start knowing a little bit more about COVID or other things, uh, those videos have disappeared. So those myths has also disappeared. So with knowledge, the myths dropped and all of a sudden it's like, wash your hands, wear your mask, keep social distancing. All right, I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's a virus, so humankind has been selected by viruses for all the millions of years you've been that. It's like, oh yeah, you have a point, okay. <laughs> and so it's like, well, right now we don't have a vaccine, so it has really negative, and all of a sudden, the fear went from like this crazy behaviors to, okay, yeah, I can co coexist with this. Because what I think the believe is we need to coexist into knowledge, right? And then if there's a one more step, which is confronting the fear in small steps, through the knowledge, through the guidance, uh, some fears are, are healthy and I will always remain healthy. Um, some go beyond healthy. I have, I've been hit while driving a boat by a lightning. And I do have an extreme reaction to simply the flash. If I'm outside in an open space and there's a flash, it really alters my reaction. So what I've been working on is as I hear thunder and all of that, I'll take small walks. Right? And I'll go with uh, my friend and I, as we're walking, you know, maybe you see the white through the clouds and you hear the thunder several seconds later. I'll be like, is this still okay? Because in my mind is I need to run home. But in other people's mind, it's like, no, no, this is still, you know, several miles away. We're still okay. And so work through that. Now, am I going to stand underneath the lightning storm to take pictures of the lightning like some friends of mine do? I've said, absolutely not. <laughs> but if I have, let's say, a fear of sharks, first I recommend people, and I just finished a conversation, it's like Google sharks. When you say sharks, what does it mean? 
It's a lot of people just do this. Oh, well, when you enter the water, they, can, they, they exchange you for a seal. That's the reason why they eat people. It's like, they who? Because there's 520 plus species of sharks and the smallest shark in the world is this size. So if he thinks you're a seal, most likely it's going to run away. Furthermore, it doesn't live where the seals live. It lives in the abyss of the ocean. And the biggest shark in the world feeds on plankton and is known as the whale shark because it feeds like a whale. So we have these boxes. So the first thing I usually tell people is like Google shark. Google the smallest shark in the world, the biggest shark in the world. Then Google, what do sharks eat? And you'll find that there are sharks that eat, yes, seals. Some will eat turtles. Most of them eat fish. Quite a lot eat crustaceans and mollusks and all of that. And all of a sudden you're thinking, well, if I encounter a shark that eats mollusks and crustaceans, is that a dangerous shark to humans? No. So then it goes back into all this uh, review of understanding, right? So if I'm on the surface snorkeling, and I'm in an area where there are great whites hunting. Is there an inherent risk? Yes, because I do have the size and the shape of a prey for this species of shark. If I come to the Bahamas and I'm snorkeling and below me there's not just nurse sharks, is my shadow, my shape gonna tell anything to the sharks that I'm prey? No, chances are they actually think that maybe you're a predator. Because now you're big, you know, five foot five plus, you know, your three foot fins and all of that. You're moving around and splashing. You're coming over them without any fear. The nurse sharks will think, oh, predator, and will swim away. And so that's what I try to teach people is you, if you don't have that knowledge, then you can't confront the fear. And if you go in with a preset knowledge, which is incorrect, obviously you will not be able to crash through that fear. Oh, you are known as a pioneer in this practice of inducing a state of relaxation in these Caribbean reef sharks. And that differs to, there's been people in the past who have managed to, I think, induce similar states of where, you know, there's, there's no movement, but yours differs a little bit, doesn't it? Yes. So what you're referring to is called tonic immobility. Yeah. yeah. And tonic immobility is a, a reaction of not only sharks, but actually other creatures. Reactions of other animals, not only sharks, to either situation of stress or threat. So some animals actually freeze in a threat uh, situation. Some actually is a stressful situation. And tonic immobility in sharks is usually achieved through uh, grabbing of the shark rather forcefully, and then uh, scientists actually flip them upside down. When you flip them upside down, they go limp. And actually, there's been scientists being able to do minor surgery, like inserting satellite tags, stitches, or anything like that. It is also used by males to easy uh, mate with the females. The shark's mate by internal fertilization. And so the male tends to flip the female over so she goes more in a relaxed state during the mating process. Um, and the reason why is goes back one more step. The female picks the male through strength. So the female struggles on the advances of the male to mate to test his strength. The male has to, it's basically, and again, that brings us to another conversation, but if males has to forcefully push the female into this upside down position, but he has to uh, forcefully do that because she's resistant to test that he can actually do this. Does it make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's a selection process. The yeah. females select the males through testing his strength. Right. And to test the strength, she simply resists. Mm -hmm. 
So, and that brings us back to other things. You know, people look at that and it's like, oh, that is so violent, you know, so aggressive. It's like, well, no, that's how nature decided that the female will pick the male. And that's how, that's how it's done. Right? So that's tonic immobility. What I do is relax because it's not forceful. My sharks are approaching the two meters length. Uh, not all the sharks I handle uh, allow me to put them into this relaxed position. Some people say it's the stimuli of the ampulla of Lorenzini, but if that was the truth, then anyone could just, you know, do that and put them to sleep. But my sharks, I let them select who wants to be pet. I allow them to come into my lap and then I just stroke them gently, but they're still alert. So uh, one of the things I do when I have students, I show them, you know, if this is a shark eye, I show that the shark is still following the finger with her eye, for example. If we are crowding, like we were doing some DNA and length measuring. In the old days, I didn't have photogrammetry, I didn't have lasers, so we use actually a measuring tape. If the scientist crowded the shark too much while she's relaxing my lap, then she'll swim away. It's like, oh, too, I'm too constricted. Where a tonic immobility shark will not rely how many people have hands on him or her. Uh, my sharks will just. You're like, no, this is too many people. I'm just going to swim away. So that's the difference. So the first time then a shark settled in your lap, is there a way you can describe that feeling or that first connection you felt and you first uh, developed this technique? I cried. <laughs> I emotionally sat there. Uh, the two sensations that I remember and to this day that I still absolutely love are the weight of the shark as she slowly slumps into my body mm. and then feeling her mouth opening and closes as she pumps water through her gills doing what it's called buccal pumping so quote-unquote breathing sharks don't really breathe but feeling that jaw movement that gentle pumping up and down is just those two sensations are priceless so the first time it was extremely emotional and I think every time for me it's a privilege it's an absolute privilege that a shark allows me to do that, that a shark trusts me to that level and feels so comfortable to say, I will just sit here for as long as I please because in this moment I am relaxed and I feel safe. You once described your time spent underwater with the sharks as a busy silence and the most peaceful and calming moment of your day. And I must say, when I was watching the videos, I was watching a few videos on YouTube before we started, and just these visuals of you, you know, settling with the sharks, it was almost tranquil. It almost looked like meditation. So where does your mind go in those moments? In those moments, right there, the power of now, it goes into that moment. It goes into absorbing the sensation of the shark. Sometimes I just pause and just stand and watch as the jacks swim by and the sun reflects over the sand and the little fish, you know, pick off the sand, the little things that the sharks steer up. And then I watch her remora cry and I just absorb all of that. That is where my mind goes. It is meditation and it is very calming to be with them. They're just so beautiful and elegant and in a certain way so accepting of our presence in their world and in their territory so it is absolutely 
a busy silence because they're busy, right? They're moving and all that. But it's uh, very calming, very relaxing. You can tell the difference in, uh, even in me, even to this day, if I go several days without diving, and then I'm allowed to go diving, never mind going diving with my sharks in a cave. I, can, I surface and you can tell I have a different uh, demeanor and different energy. How important to you is the conservation work you do and, and how beneficial is that to your, to your soul and your human being? Well, to me is obviously very important. I am a believer that um, we might not be a change in the world, uh, but we can make the world a difference for someone. Hmm. So I'm a firm believer that if I can help uh, one sharks or 10 sharks or 15 sharks or maybe one student, 10 students or 20 students, that will eventually make the difference into uh, the ripple effect, right? So, and that to me is what makes it important. I, I don't think that I would do this if I could not be involved in conservation for the simple fact that uh, if you love something or someone, let's say someone, right? If you love, <laughs> if you love someone, you want to protect them. You want to do the best you can for them. So I love my sharks. I, but the sharks come with the oceans and I love all the creatures in the ocean. I have Esmeralda, my eel, I have a secret agent, the grouper, I even have a anemone that I pass by and you know everyone says wave hello. So there's all these animals are all interconnected and when you love something like that then you definitely want to protect it because going in and then say well you know someone else will take care of this then it would not make any sense. And the same goes with the caves. I love cave diving, but I also do believe there's a such uh, unique environments and they're so actually connected with sharks because the caves connect the land with the mangroves. The mangroves are breeding grounds. We could have a whole, you know, uh, talk about just that. But once you love something, you want to do the best for them. You want to see out their best and you want to protect it as much as you can. If anyone was to visit your website right now, they'd come across this quote that says, water flows through every aspect of our lives. Following that flow makes us realize that everything is so vitally interconnected. So in that spirit, what are the best ways in which myself or the listener can get connected with these conservation efforts, even in a very small ways? What are the first steps we can take to say to ourselves, we're helping, we're making a difference? Uh from where you are and it's actually on my people of the water website um, underneath action there is something about that is it could be as a, a small little steps that we started doing so i decide from now on not to take a takeout coffee with a plastic lid but i will actually leave home with a mug like i have a cup in my desk at work as well as i travel with a coffee mug i travel with a water bottle and I actually sometimes arrive to the level of dehydration, try not to use, uh, like on a plane, plastic water bottle. Um, 
we can start with reducing our impact in chemical use. So look at our bathroom shelf and maybe change some of the products that we use. Remember that anything that I put on my skin and anything I put on my hair or from the sunblock to the shampoo to the conditioner will eventually wash somewhere into the water, right? So our shower, it goes down. Uh, one of the examples I make is take care of your car. You don't realize, but like a little dripping of oil, a little, little different of uh, uh, coolant and all of that will end up on the asphalt. But when it rains, that water washes that into the underground, into the river, which then eventually arrive to the ocean. Those are the small ones. And then you can start, basically I, I say, think globally and act locally. So one of the bottles I tried to find is if you, so what if you have snails in your garden? Instead of poisoning the snails, maybe there is a way to find those animals that eat the snails that live in the air. But if you poison the snails and then those animals eat the snails, you also poison the animals and then you're not going to have the predators, all you're going to have is more snails. We've proved this over and over. So change our approach to how we view also nature and beauty. And I'm based very close to the American side, so maybe in, in your side it's a little bit different you hear this is obsession oh the grass has to look a certain way and it's like well what's wrong with dandelions and yellow flowers what's wrong if the blades have different shapes and sprout out of the grass in a different form why do i have to you know put down all these poisons to have this kind of certain looking grass why don't i just let nature do what does best with grass and then helps the bees and then helps the pollination so little steps within ourselves ride a bike if you don't have to drive a car or carpool if you can actually afford to do that and i understand now during covid is you know hard um go shopping with and again i'm talking to europe but go shopping with canvas bags uh, pick up produce that is not in plastic bag put it in your cart without the plastic bag when you arrive home just wash it uh, reduce your chemicals. I do quite a lot of washing. Uh, there's one that's called Simple Green, which is like super biodegradable. And then vinegar and baking soda are two excellent cleaning devices. And you start doing these little things. You start looking into these little steps. I think uh, go to a, a farmer's market, right? Um, maybe become more seasonal in your food choices. Understand maybe something should not be on the shelf for you 24 seven for 365 days out of the year. And so once you start doing that, you put less pressure on the demand. And when the demand decreases, then also it changes the way um, we produce and it has to adapt to that. Thank you for that. Now we talked just, just before we started recording the interview, we were talking about, you mentioned how busy your life is, you know, whether it's diving, your conservation efforts, social media which is fantastic the business side of things i mean if you type you into the internet there's you know you're involved in loads of media whether it's discovery nacho i've seen you on the bbc what is your approach to dealing with time management and you know you do so much do you ever suffer with burnout i yes and no because what I do is I schedule days like today, where for example, I know that I will be pushing my limits of doing interviews, talks and all of that. But then I do days like tomorrow where I'm going to cave diving. And I might approach my social media before I leave, but then as soon as I enter in the car, one of the things I love the most is I put my phone on airplane mode. 
So then I disconnect for those eight, nine, 10 hours, and then I reconnect again. Um, I'm still learning. Like I said, you know, we're all learning. Sometimes my time management is not the best. So I am very focused on maintaining all this answer. And for me, it's vital to answer every message I receive. They're in the hundreds. Imagine. But I do answer every comment that I receive on my social media. The Dodo video, I stop trying to find those comments. But if somebody approaches me directly through any of my social platforms, chances are I will answer. If it's a question with an answer, if it's like a comment, I will may say thank you, which takes a lot of time, right? Um, but what I've also learned is to basically say, okay, that's it for today. The rest is tomorrow. And then I do the prioritization of the two different things. But I do take these periods in which you say phone, airplane mode, gone, and I'm gone for six, eight, ten hours doing that. And then sometimes we come out of the cave, we're driving home, and I'm looking at my phone still in airplane mode and there's no red dots on it. And I come home and I put it face down, and then I go and take care of the dogs. Maybe we have lunch, we clean the gear, we do all of that. And I'm sort of, I'm like, okay, I'm going to open the phone. <laughs> and deal with that at a later date. Awesome. So before I let you go, I have three questions left for you that we ask every guest. Uh, the first one is, our audience uh, love books. They love reading. I think I can see a few behind you. Is there any book or maybe one or two books you've read in your life that have greatly impacted you? Uh, Ishmael from Daniel Quinn was one of them. It was uh, definitely impacted uh, the concept of how do we change this world into the, well, I am telling you what the issues are and now is your job to tell someone else and in the meantime, do something good. So that is a concept of the book is basically it's like, well, I want to save the world. How do I save the world? It's like, well, you start with one little action and then you also tell someone else, it's like, hey, did you know that? And very fundamental into that. Uh, I'm trying to think from the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Was one of the most impactful books into the concept of like the duty and, and the, uh, the, the bringing to end what you basically set out yourself out to do. Uh, besides the adventures and the descriptions and the beautiful landscapes, but it's just like the tenacity by which, you know, this ring needs to be delivered back. And it's just, I think, is just fundamental as a young mind to read uh, that kind of adventure and see uh, that effort through it. Uh, those will be some of the two most influential. As you can see, uh, and this is my television, I don't have a TV. So I read uh, uh, books and it goes all the way up and all the way down. And so there's history books and there's a uh, women in the world books and the nature books and um, minority books, uh, quite a lot of shark books and ocean books. So I basically continually absorb it and they change me in unique ways, each and every one of them. Sometimes even a novel makes you think about uh, differently about some aspect of your life. Absolutely. Love that answer. So the next one is, imagine every person on the planet is tuned into the same frequency 
and you get a chance to deliver one message that you would love every person on the planet to hear, what would your message to the world be? The message to the world. Slow down. Slow down and just absorb a little bit more. And I think if we all did that, we would actually be able to see all the other uh, things uh, that might happen. I'll give you an example. If I slow down, maybe I have time to brew my coffee at home. So I don't have to buy that coffee on the fly and that lunch on the go. And, and so slow down. Love it. The last question I have for you. So for me, what makes my life worth living is producing conversations like these and sharing them with people that help them to grow and learn. But for you, Christina, what makes your life worth living? Ooh, that's a, that's a very good surprise question. I think the capability of being able to explore this world of ours that is absolutely amazing and to share this world of ours through the education and that what makes it worth living is i experience it discover it acquire the knowledge and i'm able to share it and that's what makes life very much worth living Christina, where can our audience find you on social media and on the internet and connect with you? Uh, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn under the same, which is uh, Christina Zanato, C-R-I-S-T-I-N-A-Z-E-N-A-T-O. Uh, there's a huge thunderstorm over us, by the way. <laughs> and uh, on my website, the same, christinazanato.com. And then... Um, I think uh, people of the water, pownonprofit.org. That's all the other place where you can find me. Perfect. Christina, thank you so much for your time. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation and good luck. And um, I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And that is it for this Monday's episode of the Freedom Pact podcast. If you prefer to watch your podcasts rather than listen, head over to youtube.com forward slash Freedom Pact where every interview is available in video format. Also, if you haven't already, sign up to our Healthy, Wealthy and Wise newsletter. That is at freedompact.co.uk. Until next time, thank you for listening.